and lead singing and read scriptures and do the wonderful things that they are doing, it's a good thing. And we should be uh, filled with godly pride and rejoice with these fellows that come up and do these things for us, uh, before us. Uh, it is a challenging thing at any age to stand before an audience. And uh, I'm nervous tonight, and he looked like he was a whole lot less nervous than I am. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we want to continue to pray for these young men and encourage them all that we can. <clears throat> There we are. When we read the book of Exodus, one of the main themes that we concentrate on are the plagues that God brought upon that nation of Egypt. There's no doubt as to why Egypt suffered uh, from the terrible plagues. It was time that Pharaoh and the Egyptians and even the Israelites to learn that the God of heaven is indeed the Lord Almighty. We know that Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let Moses and the people go as he requested into the desert to worship God. But the question we might ask is why did Israel have to leave Egypt to worship God acceptably? The land of Goshen had already been set aside for them by the plan of God. So they were living separately for the most part from the, from the Egyptians. The Israelites were despised by the Egyptians because of uh, the fact that they were shepherds and were made slaves. So there was already, already a clear separation between the Egyptians and God's people. So why the need to leave? Well, there are several potential answers to that question. Uh, at least part of the reason was that God had decided to fulfill his promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. It was time for the people to inherit the land that God promised his, their forefathers. Another possibility might be that the Israelites had become so influenced or so complacent in their relationship with the Egyptians that they had forgotten that they were supposed to be sojourners in a land that was not their home. This seems to be the case when we notice their constant murmuring against Moses and their desire to return to Egypt every time something went a little bit wrong. Rather than putting their trust and their faith in God and his servant Moses, they would always cry out, oh, we, we were doing so much better as slaves in Egypt under a taskmaster who was burdensome to us. So may, maybe that was part of the problem. But God gives us a specific reason as to why he wanted his people to leave. And that is found in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 7. Exodus 11 verse 7 says, But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Israel was required to leave so that God could put a difference, and I want you to concentrate on that word right now, a difference between Egypt and Israel. Now that's a very significant and important word because it's only used seven times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Now let's ask this question then. 
Was there a difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians before they left the land of Goshen? Well, the answer to that is yes. They were different nationalities. They were, had different backgrounds. They had different customs. They had different cultures. The Egyptians were taskmasters. The uh, Israelites were slaves. There was definitely a socioeconomic difference between the two. So if they were already different, then why did Israel need to leave Goshen to be different? And the answer is found in that word difference. The word is palah, the Hebrew word, and it means to be distinct, to be marked out, to be separated, to be distinguished. In other words, to be different in nature from something of a similar type. Not just a different skin color, not just a different heritage, not just a different culture or practice or habits. Different in nature, in the very being of the individuals than someone of the, uh, something of a similar type. And so God did not want his people just to be different for the sake of being different. He didn't want his people to be separated just for the sake of being separated. He wanted his people to be distinct. That is to say, God wanted his people to be recognizably different in nature from something else of a similar type. Now, when King Balak went to Balaam, he said, I want you to curse Israel. This is in Numbers chapter 23 and verse 9 particularly. But in in that passage of Scripture, in that chapter of God's holy word, Balaam looks at the king and he says, Look, the only thing I can do is tell you what God tells me to tell you. I, I might not be able to curse them. I might not be able to bless them. But I'm going to tell you what God tells me to say. That's my job. And so instead of cursing them... Balaam blesses Israel. And in verse 9 of chapter 23 of Numbers, the scripture says this, For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Now when you read it from the King James Version, it sounds like it's coming from an external source. The external source is not going to treat them as though they're just like everybody else. The other nations are not going to treat them the same as if they were one of their own. God is not going to treat them like he treats the other nations. But the NIV makes it a little clearer when it says, I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. That's the lesson that Israel had to learn that they were not just one of the nations. They were distinct. They were different. God wanted Israel to leave Goshen not only so Egypt could recognize them as a distinct people, but so that they could learn it for themselves, that they were different in nature from the other nations around them. The problem with Israel 
is that they either forgot or were never satisfied with being distinct. They were constantly being influenced to conform to the likeness of the nations surrounding them, so much so that they even told God's appointed servant, Samuel, that they wanted to be like the nations around them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king, uh, make us a king just uh, to judge us like all the nations. God says, I want Israel to be different. Israel says, we want to be like. They're forgetting why they were led out of Israel in the, out of Egypt in the first place. So that they could be distinct. And so Samuel takes this request to God. And God sends a message back to Israel and tells them how terrible it's going to be for them if they have a king. And if you read that description, you would have to wonder why in the world anybody would want to have a king over them based upon how that king would treat them. But it didn't matter. They weren't satisfied with distinctiveness. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. For all that time they were wandering in the wilderness. For all that time they went into the promised land and began to conquer the promised land. God fought for Israel. Now they no longer want God fighting for them. They want a king. They don't want to be distinctive. They want to be like. For some reason... God's people fought against his plan for his people to be recognizably different in nature from something else of a similar type. Now, I said all of this to get to this point. Has God changed his plan for his people? Or does God still want his people to be distinctive? When Jesus established his church, did he want his disciples to be distinctive, recognizably recognizably different in nature from something of a similar type? Here's yet another question. As the church of Christ, are we distinctive? Or is there no recognizable difference in our nature from the thousands of other religious groups of a similar type. Thousands of other groups claim to follow Christ. Are we just another one? One of the many? One of the multitude? Or are we distinctive? Well, the New Testament definitely teaches that we're supposed to be different. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. 
Now, we think of that word today as we use peculiar, and we think that means odd or strange. It means different. It means distinctive. A peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not, not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There is supposed to be a difference. Another example of this is in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, a distinctive people, a different people, different in nature from others who might be of a similar type. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. There's supposed to be such a difference that we shine as lights. The difference between light and darkness. That's the difference, the distinction that is supposed to exist between us and the world around us. Now, while it is true that God wants us to be a distinctive people, It is also true that it is easy for us to fall into the same temptation that Israel faced. If we are not diligent in our effort to be distinctive people, we can become desirous of being just like the world around us or even like those thousands of religious organizations, denominations. If we aren't careful... We can fall into that trap. We can fall into the temptation of immorality. If we fail to see the distinctive nature of the church and uphold it, we might succumb to the latest religious trend or spiritual fad that comes along and be led away from the Lord and His will. It's easy to get caught up when we see people who seem to be so excited about a particular doctrine or a particular practice where they worship and never ask whether or not it's scriptural, never ask whether or not it's biblical, never ask whether or not it has the authority of God's Word behind it. And it's real easy for us to open our doors and allow it to come in because it's so appealing to the eye, so pleasant to the soul. But isn't that the way sin is? We have to be careful because there is real danger in failing to be distinctive. 
Ephesians 4, starting in verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slide of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It's amazing to me how so often somebody can find something new in the Scriptures that no one has ever seen before. Oh, I I found this in my study, and I've never heard anybody teach about it. I must be the first person to ever read this part of the Bible and realize that nobody ever else has ever read it or studied it or, or figured out what it says. That's usually a dead giveaway. What they're about to say is either their opinion or some trumped-up doctrine that is not what the Bible teaches. And so we need to watch out for that danger. Acts 20, starting verse 29. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Notice who is looking for disciples, who is drawing away disciples. They're not making disciples for Jesus. They're making their own disciples. That's why it's so important that we're alert to the danger. Matthew 15, verse 8, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart are far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus knew of the temptation to be dissatisfied with distinctiveness. He was there in the desert. He watched it with Israel. He was there in the time of the judges. He watched it with Israel. He was there in the time of the prophets, and he watched it with Israel. And when he established his church... He was determined that we would be a people who are so different in nature, so distinctive in nature that we're different from anyone who might be like us. And so we need to look tonight at three specific areas. It's not an end-all, be-all. We could, we could cover a lot of areas tonight, but I'm just going to cover three. Three areas that we need to be distinctive in, that we must be distinctive in. If we are a distinctive people, we must uphold, proclaim, and defend a distinctive doctrine. The church is supposed to be the guardian of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tarry long, that you mayest know, uh, that thou mayest know, how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, when we look out there and see all those that are of a similar type, we hear people say, Oh, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. And nothing else matters. But that's not what the Bible teaches. What we teach has to be distinctive. Our doctrine has to be different 
from what is seen and taught in the world. 2 Timothy 1, 9, Whosoever transgresseth, transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. There is a doctrine, a distinctive doctrine, a doctrine that's different from all others, and that's the doctrine that we must uphold and proclaim and defend with every ounce of our being lest there be some who are led astray. That's why we have warnings like what, what Paul wrote in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is a distinctive doctrine that is different from anything that is of a similar type. Sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. A distinctive doctrine. If the truth is to prevail... It is up to us as the body of Christ to keep it pure and free from the doctrines of men. Now, not only are we supposed to be distinctive in doctrine, the doctrine that we teach, we're also supposed to be distinctive in the lives that we live. We're supposed to live our lives in such a way that we are recognizably different in nature than those who might be similar to us. Distinctive. And so in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, Bert talked about people who were seeking this morning, And I appreciated his lesson. But look at where all the world seeks to find happiness. Look where they all seek to find comfort. Look where they all seek to find peace. Look where they all seek to fulfill whatever need they might have. And how many of that or how much of that has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus? And so... We have to set an example. And when we find those people who are seeking, they can look at us and say, you're different. You're not like everybody else. Because of the life that you live, you're different. You're distinctive from the rest of the world. Philippians chapter 2, 14, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, I haven't given up on our nation yet. But one of the reasons I quit watching so much news on TV was because I was becoming quite convinced that we live in a crooked and perverse nation. 
Yes, there is ungodliness and it is rampant in the world. I have to rise above it. I have to live above it. I have to shine a light on it as I shine a light on Christ with my life. I have to be distinctive. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We live our lives according to the will of God. And the reason we're able to live our lives according to the will of God is because we teach a distinctive doctrine. We know the truth, and the truth has made us free from the law of sin and death. And because we have followed the Lord's will, we glorify Him in this world, and we shine as lights because we are distinctive. When people cannot look at us and see a difference in how we live, how we dress, how we walk, how we act and react to the world, we've lost our distinctiveness. We cannot take on the nature of the world and be pleasing to God at the same time. We have to have the nature of Christ who lives in us. So not only are we to be distinctive in the doctrine we proclaim and in the lives that we live, but we're supposed to be distinctive in the love that we share and the love that we offer to others. I am sure that you have all experienced someone who claimed to love you, but they were looking for something. They had an ulterior motive. They had a scheme or a plan. And they tried to get next to you. Our love is supposed to be recognizably different in nature from those who might be similar to us. So Jesus said in John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye love one another. And if you will, by this shall all men know that ye are distinctive different in nature from all those around us who may be similar. We're supposed to have such a love for one another that people can see it immediately and recognize us as the disciples of Christ. They certainly can recognize if our love is not genuine, if we do not love one another as we should. So Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, For brethren, You've been called unto liberty, only use not your liberty, use not liberty, for an occasion to the flesh. But by love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. 
Now, we generally apply this, uh, and accurately, apply this doctrine to the church, to one another as we're gathered here. It doesn't stop when we walk out the door. It continues in our homes, in relationships between husbands and wives. It continues in our homes, in our relationship between parents and children. It continues in our home between siblings. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed. It continues in our jobs. It continues wherever we are, practicing some form of recreation. Now, I know fans can get a little ugly. If you've ever been to any kind of sporting event, you know that some of those people, even people who are cheering for the same team, can bite and devour each other like you would not believe. I made the mistake of going to see the Louisville Cardinals, Cardinals, when we were in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and I went there and I had my little portable TV and I was watching the UT game on, on the portable TV while I was watching the Cardinals in the stadium. And some big fella behind me stood up and spilled his beer all over me. Oh, no. It was terrible. <laughs> and uh, I, I, he, he apologized. It was nice of him to apologize like that. And I said, don't worry about it. It's an accident. You didn't do it on purpose. It's okay. A little cold, but other than that, everything's fine. And so what he did was he went down to concession stand and bought himself another beer and bought one for me. And I had to tell him, thank you, but no, (laughs) I don't drink beer. That's not my thing. And he was offended. He was offended that I would not take his free gift as a makeup or apology or whatever it was. The point is that when we love with a distinctive love, it's constant. It's in every situation and circumstance. It's with every people that we meet and every people we contact and every, every people we spend our, our time with. It's supposed to be different, distinctive. And that's why there's so many admonitions in the scriptures to love differently than the world. Romans 12, 9 and 10, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. So he says love, make that love real, and then he says love kind of get the idea that he's pretty serious about that subject. 1 Peter 1, 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We obeyed a distinctive doctrine. We obeyed the gospel plan of salvation and we became the children of God. And because of that, there is something that unites us that is greater than the world has ever seen. It is the love of Christ that has flowed down upon us because we decided to obey the truth. 
because we decided to allow the blood of Christ to purify our souls, because we decided to allow the Spirit to come into our lives through our obedience, because we decided to be born again, we are different and distinctive. And now the Word of God lives in us. And we glorify Him with our lives and with our love. If people cannot recognize the difference in nature of our love from one another, for one another, and from those who might be similar, then we may not be as distinctive as we need to be or as the Lord would require of us. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hidden agenda. Let love be true and pure and distinctive. Being distinctive begins with our obedience to that distinctive doctrine. When we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we confess His name before men, when we repent of our sins and we're buried with Him in baptism for the remission of our sins, that separates us. That makes us different. But sometimes it takes a little bit to become distinctive. It takes growth. It takes spiritual maturity. It takes going beyond being a newborn babe in Christ and maturing in Christ. And so tonight, if you've never entered obedience to the gospel plan of salvation, we want to encourage you to do that. We want you to become part of this distinctive body, which is the Lord's church. It could be that you've surrendered to the temptation to become like the world. It's an easy temptation to fall into. It's rampant. It's difficult. It's challenging. But it may mean that you need to be restored to your first love. You need to be restored to Christ. Thank God that when we sin, we have an avenue through which we can come back to God and be found pleasing in His sight. Are you distinctive? Is there a clear and distinct difference in your nature and those who are of a similar type? If not, then you need to respond to the invitation as we stand and sing to encourage you.